We'll get started. There are a few people who are on some food yet, but they'll they'll arrive shortly. And this is the CSIS Careers in Development series that has been going on for a couple of years now. And uh, with us today is Paul Gannett from ACDI Voca, and I believe you've had you. Uh, if they've had his notice out there, um, he's had a long career working with NGOs, and he's worked with NGOs, but also with the World Bank, USAID, IFAD, a lot of other organizations, four decades of experience. And counting. Yeah. So, so he's got a lot of experience in the NGO community and in international relations, and so he's going to talk about that and the changing uh, environment we work in, in uh, international development, and has some thoughts on what uh, young professionals in today's world uh, uh, should think about uh, when they're considering a career in, in international development. So with that, Paul, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, thank you, Ambassador Garveling. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to make uh, some initial comments uh, about, about the world in which we're working, and, and then I'll, I'll kind of segue to my, my advice for you today. And uh, we'll, we'll have at least half of our time for discussions, question and answers. So feel free to, to note your queries as, as we go. Uh, the reason I wanted to talk about the world is because I find myself increasingly, when I'm, when I'm advising people about their careers in international development, uh, realizing that it's a very different world today than the world in which I began my career 40-odd uh, years ago. Uh, for one thing, it's, it's a more violent world today. We have something close to 65 million stateless people uh, today as we speak. That's a world record. We've never had that many, that bad. Uh, the violence is, uh, is showing itself in, uh, in a famine in East Africa today. Uh, UNICEF uh, suggested that 1.4 million children are starving to death in Somalia, Yemen, South Sudan, and northern Nigeria, the Boko Haram-controlled area. So I equate that famine with man-made violence. Those are all uh, dysfunctional areas and, and therefore lacking security and lacking development. There's a famine because there's a drought, there's poverty. In, in East Africa, but in that list of, of famine, we don't hear Ethiopia where we once did. We don't hear Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, because those are places where your industry, my industry, international development has been working. We build food security. We build peace. Uh, violence with poverty and without food security uh, causes famines. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty direct. Uh, we're seeing an urbanization in the world today. Uh, for the first time, there are more people in, in Africa living in cities than in rural areas. This changes the dynamic for what was once known as rural development. Uh, in fact, the, the urbanization in Africa has been, been said to be happening twice as fast as it happened when it happened in Europe. So, so we're in a faster-moving world, uh, which kind of brings me to the, the whole globalization phenomena that, that was the talk of the industry 10 years ago. Uh, 
And my perception of the developing country's environment is that globalization is, is still striking. It's still happening there. If you look at, at food products and food trade, you find that more products from more countries going to more countries is, uh, is the trend. And that means that even in developing countries, whether it's Burkina Faso or Botswana, you have a, a, a fledgling food industry that is, that is facing international competition faster. Uh, there's a supermarketization, excuse me, that happened in uh, Europe, it happened in Latin America, it's happened in North America, it's happening in Africa now, where the, the open-air traditional markets where the farmer brought their little pile of tomatoes is uh, becoming a thing of the past, and your urban multi-income families, they want to go to the supermarket. And the supermarkets, by dint of being more formal, have standards. They have buying systems which require volumes and product standards, and governments are starting to, to cover for food safety issues. It's, 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 uh, it's a tipping point for your rural farmers. Either they're going to be able to ratchet up their quality and quantity to meet this new growing marketplace, or they're going to become disenfranchised uh, in those rural areas that aren't as well connected uh, through infrastructure. So that's, that's happening. Uh, there's a big youth bulge everybody knows about. Uh, in Africa, 70% of the population is under the age of 30. This is, uh, this is just a fact. So it's a good news, bad news. It's, uh, it's dangerous because if, if that population in an in a developing country isn't stimulated, isn't satisfied, doesn't see opportunities, they leave or they, or they create social unrest. The, the opportunity is, all right, for the, for the development industry, how do you take advantage of that, that youth bulge and make, make farming agribusiness and make cell phones the, the technology that helps groups of farmers sell their products. It helps aggregation. It helps uh, quality programs. It helps sorting and grading. There's a lot of business around agriculture that isn't uh, farming like their parents did. And I think that that's the, the good news, bad news around globalization, youth bulge, urbanization, and the growth of markets. Uh, it's uh, in our own in our own grocery stores now. We can find ripe, delicious, even tomatoes that taste like tomatoes, and uh, and you have to you have to be you have to be careful and you have to find them. But you can, you can find pomegranates fresh. You can find passion fruit juice, single serving, ready to ready to consume. This didn't used to be. And that's what's happening in Africa's urban areas. We're getting a lot more value-adding, a lot more investments in the process of getting food to those urban areas and getting food transformed and value-added for those urban markets and the supermarkets. Uh, there's another indicator of the change that, that Ambassador Garvelink and I have undergone in the environment of the developing countries. When, when we began decades ago, 
the development assistance was was the leader. The, the USAID mission director would literally call up ministers in that country and say, I need you to come over for a chat. And, and private sector investment was not coming near. It was, as recent as 15 years ago, I believe, it was 80% development assistance, 20% private capital. Foreign and, and domestic investment was the little part. It's flipped. So now you've got private capital driving the great majority of these developing economies. Development assistance is now trying to find its place, trying to be catalytic, trying to influence uh, the private capital flows to be more inclusive, to be socially valuable, to be more impactful. So the business of international development has, has changed. It's, it's flipped. The good news is, yeah, it, it acknowledged. It, it knows that it has to be increasingly catalytic. It has to invite in and, and involve lots of stakeholders. And it has to seek out some of this private capital, whether it's domestic or international, and try and leverage that for development objectives and purposes. Um, all right, just to, just to shift then. So, so the conclusion there is that it's a different business today than when I began, so that your career arc is unlikely to be like mine was or is. And uh, we acknowledge that before I'm turning to, to, give you, to give you my advice. I'm giving you advice as though it's today. And, it's, and then I've got, a, I've got a surprise kicker at the end, so bear with me. Um, I'm starting from the, the, the position that international development has changed mightily because the world is so different. One of the leading features that we're experiencing today is learning, uh, whether it's collaborative learning and adaptation or co-creation uh, with, with donor funding and private sector partners trying to find win-win-win situations. Um, learning is big. Uh, if, if there's a majority of, of listeners and viewers there that are students, I'll just, I'll just let you know that it doesn't stop. I remember being in grad school and just waiting for that final exam, thinking, damn, I, I'll, be, I'll be glad to work. I, I just want to stop going to school. You don't get to stop, OK? <laughs> you don't get to stop. Uh, I mentioned the, the necessity of light touch, catalytic work. I believe that the, the past, we had development programs that came in to do things. That's, that's the way of the past. Today, development programs have to uh, they have to act like like a like a smart consultant would, and you have to assess the situation, and you have to say what are the dynamics, and what are the power forces here, and what shape is the economy in, and where are we, and do we have finance, and do we have some infrastructure, before you start advising anything, and the best, most successful programs today are those that that gather these powerful sources, whether it's a government ministry that's, that's leading the way, uh, some private investors who are, who are stretching the, the envelope a little bit and investing in food processing. You have to find those leading stakeholders, and you have to build the development program around them. 
so it's, it's a real light touch. We don't, we don't intervene any longer. We don't, we don't even call them interventions. We're catalytic light touch. We're trying to make things behave differently without doing them ourselves. If we can align the incentives on these multiple groups of stakeholders and cajole them into doing it in a better way, more efficiently, more effectively, in a sustainable manner that's inclusive so that the smallholders get, get a benefit out of it, then we win. Now, the, the downside of doing it that way is that it takes longer. It's harder. It's, uh, it, it requires a partnership with your donor or financer or private company. Whoever's paying for it has to understand that this is, this is ultimately going to make a sustainable change in how the food industry works. And that's really the objective here. It's not to have a training and, and, and teach 80 people. Uh, so learning, light touch. Leveraging funds. Uh, the public-private partnership is, is, is booming. And I think that we're really just at the beginning of that wave. I think that 10 years from now, you're going to look back and say, we, we hardly knew. It was just the tip of the iceberg. Things now are almost not done any longer unless there's a public-private partnership. I think, it's, I think it's steaming ahead full speed. Ah. I talked a little bit already about, about collaboration and multiple stakeholders. The, the team, if you're from an NGO or you're from a consulting firm uh, funded by the Millennium Challenge Corporation, the team implementing the program has to actually be a minority player in the program. You've got to identify those other partners who, who want something, need something, and, and you've got to maneuver the program to play on that so that they're stimulated and, and motivated to be involved in the program. It's, it's about collaboration, multi-stakeholder. Co-creation is one of my, my new favorite terms. We're finding as, as we start to work increasingly for multinational corporations that they don't follow a typical U.S. government procurement uh, procedure. They don't know about the FAR. They don't know about the regulations, and they want to get something done. And sometimes going into it, they're not sure what they want done. So co-creation becomes uh, a process and an ability whereby you approach these forces and you you sit with them and discuss what they're trying to get done. And when you can demonstrate your value to help them achieve their objectives and you understand that that's consistent with what you're trying to do, you have a new program. You've co-created. But it's, uh, it's, it's tricky and it's, it's, not for, it's not for linear thinkers. Uh, there's, a, there's a good trend in the last five years around uh, monitoring and evaluation, uh, measuring impact, measuring behavior change. Uh, really, the, the whole industry standards have, have risen well toward uh, impactful change. Back not, not too long ago, 
programs were simple and you were paid for training and you did training and you had people who were trained and then it evolved to say but well, was the training effective how do you how do you measure that have they changed how they behave afterwards and so now we've we've graduated to a to a place where i i don't know of 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 anyone active in international development today who's not strengthening their M&E systems and just going for nice, usable information that can influence management. It's management information systems. It's not after-the-fact uh, evaluation reports. Um, it's no secret. And that's, that's been demanded by people with money that are paying the, you know, it's, whether it's donors or companies or foundations. Sustainable change, management use of information, uh, learning so that, so that you, you have adjustable work plans, conditions change, macro circumstances change, uh, programs will, will demonstrate proof of concept. Some, some of the most successful programs today, and there's one that's, that's USAID uh, Feed the Future funded uh, coming to a wrap this summer in Zambia. Classic case of learning and adjustable work plan. They had a, an extension system planned to reach rural farmers with market information and buyers. And it wasn't, it wasn't working about a year in, and they, they took, a, took a step back and had a, had a brainstorm meeting, and it was actually some Zambian staff who suggested since you're shooting at Eastern Zambia province, things there work a little differently. You really should try and find uh, entrepreneurs there and let them be the intermediate node. And the project accepted that. The donor concurred. And they built this fabulous network of community agents who were entrepreneurs who lived there, who got a little bit of business training, opened a, a shop, and they became the distributors for agricultural inputs to a group of several hundred or as much as a thousand small farmers whom they knew. They could advise them. They could teach them how to use this and what ratios to have. And they became also the market aggregation point for that same group of small farmers that they knew. Because of that direct relationship, very, very little failed debt very efficient, effective change happening, and the, the network of community agents became so successful that Syngenta Zambia actually moved their input distribution network to those community agents. They said, well, let's, yeah, let's move our seed and fertilizer through this network of entrepreneurs. So it's just an example of, of learning and adapting uh, on the fly to make a good program. All right. I'm going to switch to careers in development advice. Uh, can I have a show of hands? Who here is interested in a, in a job? Okay, we got it. Yeah. And if you, ha if you didn't raise your hand, would you be interested in a better job? Okay. <laughs> I just like to get unanimity. Um, my, my advice is, is scope, it, scope it to real the the industry is is fast moving it's complex it it seems as though there are hundreds of places so 
My, my first advice is, it, it's kind of like, build yourself a quadrant. You have for-profit and you have non-profit. Organize it that way. Start, start your own database. You've, you've, I talked about learning. You've got to learn the industry. So a, a good, easy first division is for-profits and non-profits. And then on your, on your x-axis, that's your x-axis, on your y-axis, size. You got the big people and you got little people that are more niche and specialized. That gives you a quadrant into which you can start organizing your database of entities for whom you could work. Uh, there, are, there are multinationals that are the big, fast-rising business segment. Uh, you can work for Nike now and do international development. Coca-Cola, uh, Pepsi's adopted uh, water. Uh, there are also a fast-growing segment of foundations. Uh, it, it, it used to be we, we knew about Gates, but yeah, Rockefeller, uh, Hewlett, Packard, McKnight, uh, the Johnson, the foundations are, are growing and looking for professionals. I think looking back at that quadrant again, the, the multinational organizations, whether it's Asian Development Bank, African Development Bank, Inter-American Development Bank, World Bank, uh, UN organizations are, are great avenues, particularly for younger people to get in and get some, get some footing. I believe that there's a lot of moving back and forth, so, so I, I counsel people, don't be overly concerned if you want to work for a for-profit uh, consulting firm, but your first opportunities in the nonprofit sector, fine. I think in my 40 years, I, I spent half in the for-profit and half in the non-profit, uh, 20 years, 20 years. And uh, there's a lot of movement back and forth. So don't, don't feel obliged to, uh, or don't feel locked in. Seize the opportunity to get in the door. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've, been, I've been at AC Davoca for 11 years, and I've seen, I believe, six uh, interns or receptionists uh, go into the entry-level positions. A lot of places advertise internally two weeks prior to posting it publicly. If you're in the door, you can demonstrate your value, you can demonstrate your proof, you can make people appreciate you, and you can make managers try and find you a position. So get in the door. Learn before you apply an interview. Yeah, I mean, that, that's interview 101. Don't worry about the one-page CV, however. That's advice that the career offices give that I always try and, and, and dissuade. We need, we need a full CV. Sometimes computers are checking your CV first. Uh, they're looking for country. They're looking for language. If you didn't use that because you were keeping your CV to a page, you're, you're cutting your own nose off to spite your face. So don't worry about one page. Um, learn before you apply. Yeah, this is part of that learning forever. You make your quadrant, you make your list. You have to learn about each of those entities or, or at least learn about whoever you're, you're shooting at and you're going to send a cover letter to and you're going to send a tailored CV to. You've got to put in the time up front because there are too many CVs coming. So if, if, if you don't make the first cut, you don't get to talk to anybody. Um, 
it's, it's tough out there. Find your passion. Uh, as young as, as people are, you have to find something that makes your juices flow. And, and, and I, I call it find your passion. It could be, it could be gender. It could be infrastructure. It could be governance. It can be training. It could be uh, health care. But you have to be passionate about something that, that makes you have an area in which to excel, even, even for your first hired professional position. You have to be a generalist, and you have to appear to also be a specialist. That's, that's my next point, be a generalist and a specialist. Uh, be valuable. Whatever opportunity you have, uh, excel. I often find myself telling people, be brave, be courageous. And then, and then I find out later they, they didn't know what I meant. I meant be bold, be courageous, stick your neck out. Go there. When I say excel at, excel at everything, excel at what you're doing today, excel at what you're doing next week, go the extra, go the extra yard to, to, to demonstrate your commitment, your passion about something, and you don't know at what point in the future that's going to make a difference for you. You just don't know yet. But it, uh, it's a factor because at some point when you're excelling, you're going to find that you're excelling in, in, really, in really good directions, and it's going to teach you, and it's going to open more doors. Every, every year of my 40, uh, different doors have opened, and, and I learn new things. So, yeah, excel. All right. Under-promise, over-deliver. If you're an intern, yeah, be ready. Be ready to excel. Be ready to over-deliver. Be ready to anticipate and suggest. If you're, a, if you're an intern... Be the most outstanding intern. Uh, if you're a receptionist, be an outstanding receptionist because when that technical opening happens, uh, that's, that's, they're going to say, smart, really adaptable, fabulous. Yeah, they could do this job. Uh, there's, I talked about mobility earlier. It's my perception that it's slightly easier for that entry-level position to hit the nonprofit sector. They need people. There's also a lot more uh, movement there because smart people who excel can progress perhaps faster in that. Gen- I'm generalizing horribly, so forgive me. Um, and the for-profits wouldn't like to hear me say that, but it's, it's, it's a competitive world. All right. Am I in about time now to reveal my secret, secret nice surprise? Uh, DevEx. Please show of hands, DevEx. People have heard of DevEx. You visited their site, devex.com. It's pretty much our industry uh, go-to place now. Well, Monday of this week, March 20th, uh, DevEx kicked off what they call Career Navigator. It, it began Monday of this week, and it runs through Friday, March 31st, which is a week from today. So if you haven't, Start now, or or at least after after we after we dismiss. Um, it's Career Navigator. It's an online campaign, and just just to give you a sample, I've got uh, seven tips from an article by Emma Smith called "How to Get Your Global Development Career Off to a Good Start." She says, 
be willing to work for free, that's get your foot in the door, even if it's a volunteer. We advocate Peace Corps, uh, the UN, voluntary services organizations. There are ways to volunteer and, and, and they'll cover your cost and you get experience. No such thing as office hours, Emma says. Yeah, once you're in the door, if they're shorthanded, people are working long hours, maybe it's a weekend, they're putting a proposal together. If you wanted an opportunity to be outstanding, this is one of those opportunities. You give up your weekend, you help somebody get a proposal out the door, and it wins. Those people for whom you work are not going to forget that. Uh, tip three, be flexible. Yep. Uh, number four, find yourself a mentor. There are people in the industry already. It might be your, your school alumni group. It might be someone that you've met. Uh, I urge you to keep going to events like this. Meet people. You might, in, in three months' time, find yourself applying for a position at ACDI Voca. And in your cover letter, you can say, I heard Paul Gannett speak at CSIS and was very impressed with uh, your organization. I, watch. Find yourself a mentor. Be open to criticism. Yeah, even when you're an intern or you're, or you're a junior person helping on a project, take, take the criticism, take the guidance. You can initiate it. You don't have to wait a year for a performance review. Most managers are pretty pleased if a staff person comes to them and says, how could I do better? That was my, that's my, my other surprise contribution. The best job interview question is... Were I successful in getting this position, what would I have to do to make you extremely happy that you had hired me? Well, it's an easy question. And it, it usually makes the person interviewing you kind of perk up, feel important, and say, good question, and then they'll, then they'll tell you something. Uh, take a proactive approach to learning. Yeah, I said that. You, you don't get to stop when you graduate. Remember why you are doing the job. This, this goes back to your passion. It's, it's not an industry that makes you rich like investment banking once did or finance on Wall Street once did. <laughs> uh, there's another article on DevEx, this one by Kate Warren. She says, seven tips for landing your first aid job in the field. Because that's the other, that's the other challenge. You actually want to work in international development. You don't want to slog away in some back office doing filing you want to get overseas where it's happening. Number one, volunteer. Volunteer to go overseas. Uh, voluntary service overseas, Peace Corps, the UN. Be wary of the pay for volunteer uh, scams that are on the website. Um, just move there. There are some brave souls that actually go there, and then they can come and knock on the office door and say, do you need, do you need some help? Uh, I'm here in Dhaka. Uh, number three, she says, start at the home office. Yeah. And, and just the way I, I told the story about receptionists going into entry-level positions, I have even more instances where junior staff supported programs, demonstrated their capacity, moved up, started making short-term trips to help those programs in the field, and then some new element of the program morphed up and they were in a position to go over and manage that. So you, you get to the field that way and, and you, you build it from there. 
get a graduate degree. How many graduate degrees in the room or by June graduate degrees? But not right away. We, uh, we say, look, you got your undergraduate degree. You need to now go get some experience. You need to volunteer. You need to get out there. You need to get your foreign language fluent. Uh, you need to, to build your experience and then go to grad school when you know why you're going to grad school. Uh, and it builds on, on your, your passion and your specialization. Don't focus only on the big names. Uh, there, are, there are big names on both the for-profit and the non-profit side, but there are a hundred smaller names and smaller organizations to look at. Be willing to go where others aren't. Remember, we're talking about how do you get your first overseas position. Once I had little kids, my wife had veto power, and it meant we weren't going to Afghanistan, we weren't going to South Sudan, we weren't going to Congo. As excited as I could be about those places myself, I could go on a short-term trip, but we weren't, we weren't going there. So those are, those are opportunities for young people to say, yeah, I can, I can function fine in Kinshasa. Uh, be realistic and flexible, but focused. That, that, that's how I say it. Find your passion, be a generalist, but have, have some specialist area. So devx.com, this week and next, career navigator. Okay? Stop there. Well, I, thanks. I think that's a lot of good advice, and uh, DevX is always a good place to, to look for information. I suspect you may have some questions, so I will forego mine, and uh, let's open it up for questions and comments, and please state your name and your affiliation so he knows, has, so Paul has a sense of who he's talking to. So, who? We're here. And a microphone will come around. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. My name is Bumia Kinesotu. Um, I have no affiliation. I just wrapped up my time um, with uh, the administration, so I'm in. Okay. I'm, ch I'm, I'm chilling out right now. Right. So I'll just, yeah. I'll just put it that way, so mm. I can come to events like this. <laughs> um, I, I have two questions. I'll make it very quick. The first is, what advice could you give for people who are mid-career, mm -hmm. trying to go from more domestic? work to um, the international, global, mm -hmm. international development space, what, what sort of um, ways can we make our uh, skills known that they're transferable? That's a right. challenge that I'm having, um, particularly if you haven't lived abroad very long, um, but you have a global mind and sort of a, a appreciation for different cultures and all that. Um, and then the second thing, question I have is around, um, the idea of, um, you talked about your, knowing your passion and being a generalist and all that. I took a class um, around conflict, conflict building and peace negotiations, and one thing they talked about is reflective practice, which I thought was interesting. Can you talk about how during your career you managed to stay humble, stay sane, and just acknowledge maybe any bias or privilege or um, anything you might bring to the work that you do um, mm. in, in this space? Thank you. Uh, a practical question and a, and a lovely inspirational question. Uh, the practical question about mid-career shift is a good one. And actually, on Career Navigator, devx.com, this week, they have a whole section on mid-career, how do you do that pivot? 
uh, off the top of my head, I would say you revisit your, your CV. You rewrite your CV so it looks like the direction that you are intentionally pivoting. Uh, you, you name countries that you have even visited, uh, not necessarily worked there, but you name countries to show that you are an internationally uh, aware person. Do you, do you know that f- over 50% of Americans do not have a passport? Remarkable. So you have a passport. Uh, languages, <laughs> part, of, part of continuing learning is, is, is get your foreign language fluency up. Um, I often tell people, you want to get your CV in front of me, you have to basically have that master's degree, have some overseas work experience, and have fluency in a foreign language. If you speak fluent French and Spanish and Portuguese, you go right to the front of the class. Um, and, and, and show your tech area, I believe. If you're doing a mid-career pivot, you have an expertise in something. It might be grant-making. It might be administration. You might be, be a, a well-suited to be a program manager or a country officer for a, for a nonprofit. Uh, and check devx.com for the mid-career pivot. Uh, the second question, it's very, very insightful, uh, reflective, and, and humility. I, I think... I think that you're either well-suited to international development work or you're not, personality. And those who are not are not naturally reflective and, and humble, and they bomb out. You're not effective, uh, especially if we're talking about that facilitative approach that I was describing earlier. If you're a, if you're a type A uh, and you just want to shove it down somebody's throat, it's, it's not going to work. You're going to be unsuccessful. You're not going to be uh, hired again, or you're not even going to finish your, your assignment. I've been personally touched by individuals my whole career. Uh, incredible. Uh, that's, that's my passion. So I guess... That's, that's my secret. Everybody finds their own way there. But I did say, don't forget the industry that you're in and why you want to do this work. That's, uh, that's your everyday driver. Okay? And then we'll go over there. Um, hi, Mr. Gunnett. My name is Hanshing, and I work for the New Markets Lab, which is right around the corner. Um, so my question is, um, because you have experience in both, you mentioned um, um, for-profit and non-profit, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about like how um, when when you apply to like different um, areas of like organizations, like what are the uh, sort of different qualifications that they look for, if there are any, and how... Um, perhaps you can make yourself stand out more to for-profit or non-profit. Like what, what are the differences and how, how do you address that? That's a, that's, a, that's a good question. It's a tough question. I, it's been my experience that in the non-profit sector, I, I sort of said you have, you have more opportunity to do a lot more than your defined scope of work. 
So you get a job description and you do it. If you're in an organization that is, that is low on fuel, you as a, as a professional and you as a manager have an opportunity to see where things could be done better, you could do more, others could change uh, where they work, and I believe that in a, in a, in a well-functioning business, those opportunities are not as evident. You get what I'm saying? So I, I believe that in the nonprofit sector, there's more room, and there's more room to be that overachiever and stretch your wings. And the, the senior management, if it's smart, will welcome you expanding your job description. I think it's more competitive to get into the for-profit sector. Maybe the salaries are a little higher. It's, it's, a, it's a more professional-looking fast track, so it's attractive to the, the business major performers. Um, but, but even in, in those environments, I believe you still have opportunities to, to distinguish yourself. It goes back to, to what I said earlier about be outstanding at, at your job. Be outstanding and ask your, whoever the supervisor is, how you could do better, how you could be more valuable, what could you add, and, and see, what, see what they say. Um, there, are, there are MVPs in both for-profit and non-profit around management, administration, HR, finance and accounting, compliance, recruitment, not just program management and program implementation. In the big companies and the big NGOs, the way I distinguish them is that they have all of those entities and they're capable of being a prime. They can prime a contract, they can prime a big grant and bring in six institutional partners and manage the whole program. A smaller partners play those uh, the sub roles, so the big places have a lot more flexibility to take someone. If you've been in HR and are doing a pivot, they have HR, they have recruitment, they have accountants and finance and all of those areas. Okay. I could just just add a comment to that. I've, I've now I've retired from the U.S. government, but I work for the International Medical Corps, an NGO, and that does health. And uh, we have lots of doctors and nurses. We cannot find logisticians and procurement people who actually make the programs work. So, you know, you can get a doctor, a nurse, an epidemiologist very easily, but the folks that manage the system, logistics, procurement, uh, management, those sort of things are hard to find. It doesn't hurt to take a management course somewhere yeah. in your in your studies, uh, even though it may not fit in what your that major was, area That is. was a position that I, was my first salary job after Peace Corps. I was a project administrator with my Bachelor of Arts in Theater. And uh, after doing that successfully for four years, I went to Stanford Business School. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, I have to stand. Okay. Hi, I'm Dinopolicus. I had a similar uh, mid-career question, but I'll just add on. Um, man, I've already forgotten. It's very important. Um, 
I know. Oh, yes. So for, for mid-career jobs that are a little bit, you know, I have an MBA as well, and I've traveled a lot internationally. Are these going to be more network jobs, or are they good places to find postings? Like, what's the recommended process for a mid-career person to find a good match? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure I understand the question well. Could, could you rephrase it? Mid-career person. Yeah. Should I, should I go on a lot of websites and Indeed and ah. um, DevX and look for jobs there, or should I just talk to a 1,000 people and hope one of them likes me? Yeah. If it's an either-or, I'd lean toward the first. But I, I would say it's, it's an and. Yeah, go to the first. And, it, and it, I mean, the best time to find a job is when you have a job already, and so that means that you're, you're, you're job hunting in your spare time. Um, that's tough, too, because you, I believe that you have to discipline yourself and you have to schedule something in there. And you come home at 6 or 7 o'clock at night and you're bushed and you feel like you should exercise, but you promised yourself to do an hour of job search. You've got you to do it all. You've got to make it your priority. There are some websites, and you need to check them regularly. If it's once a week as a schedule, fine. And, and there are a lot of places in this industry where you, you have to tailor your CV and send it to them. So you could just work in websites. You could spend a lot of time doing that. And on top of that, you want to, you want to work your network where on the margins where you have an alumni group or something where you can find somebody who maybe is working at that organization through an alumni connection and have a phone conversation with them and then, and then bring that into your application. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I'd say you've you got to start online because there's, there's just so much there that that's an efficient way to throw a lot of bread on the water to start. Okay. Well, I, I would add just uh, something uh, a little bit from a different perspective in a sense. Um, when I started job hunting in this town about 40 years ago, um, it, it really helps also to talk to people. Everybody in this town who has a job has got help from somebody. And no, very few people are offended when you ask them for advice and suggestions. And every, this town operates by connections and who you know. So it's, and there's, it's there's an event like folks. this each week or several well, not like this. Not quite like this. <laughs> There's a series. This is once a month. <laughs> Did you have a... Okay. Um, thank you very much um, for the very important information you provided, sir. And let me also thank the CSIS for providing this beautiful opportunity for all of us to come and meet uh, uh, such wonderful people here today. Um, my question is that what is your advice for the newcomers who have come from the field to Washington, D.C., and particularly to someone who have already completed and taken all the steps that you have kindly described. For the person who came to the United States a year back and applied for more than 300 positions with only two opportunities for the interview, who has experience of 
14 plus years with United Nations and USAID in Middle East and South Asia. The person who have traveled in more than 30 countries represented United Nations and USAID, developed numerous articles and published in the diplomats and the foreign policy, who came to the United States and knew no one, and now through the informational meetings and connections knows more than 50 people, professional people within CSIS, the Brooklyn's, the SICE, and other organizations, and who already is working voluntarily within one of the organizations close here for more than seven months, and who is program management specialist, spent two hours for each resume to, to customize it, right. to, to tailor it, and apply, and who already applied for a position of the entry level, and they say, oh, sorry, you're, you're overqualified. Over but when you apply for the med positions and manager position, and you didn't get nobody it. read it. Yeah. Now, we're talking about a hypothetical person here. <laughs> I, and retirement's not an option. I, that, yeah, that's, that's, that's tough. I, uh, I advise people in this industry to have a thick skin. You've got to keep swinging. Even if you've worked for a year and done over 100 applications and only gotten two interviews and, and experience in over 30 countries, that's, uh, that's tough. And the prospective employer doesn't care. They'll see those countries on that resume that you spend two hours tailoring. That, that maybe, maybe will get them to look at the resume and, and consider the candidacy. There's no guarantees. I mean, you've, you've, this, person, this person should also have some, some Arabic language skills, hypothetically. And, yeah, four languages. I think that's good. I would... If I were that person, I would, I would pursue that large agency networks, whether it's the UN or USAID, that are, that are evolving. The, the, other, the other point I want to make is, even, even if it's, it's ACDI VOCA, and today you all send me applications and I forward them, they're only being considered for today's Opportunities and today's openings. Next week, there's a new there's a new opening and a new opportunity, and applications will come in for that. That's why I was advising the woman earlier. You sort of have to really get on top of this, like Starship Enterprise, because you may send me a resume today that doesn't get a second look, but next week you send it in. And it just happened that you worked in Qatar and speak Arabic, and there's this Jordan program that there's a proposal for. Suddenly, it becomes attractive, even though you just sent one in a week ago, and it, and it just disappeared into a black space. So you have to have a tough skin. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's a tough industry. Try and go quick. Maybe we take a, a group of questions there. 
Thanks. We're good. We're good still. Hi, everyone. My name is Marielle Stewart, and like my colleague, I'm just finishing up um, the uh, Obama administration working for NASA. I'm currently a full-time councilwoman. I uh, sit on my town council in Prince George's County, Maryland. Um, so I'm at a little bit of an awkward slash inter interesting intersection. So I'm more, I'm overqualified for entry level. So I've been in the, in working for about five, six years now. Um, but my Resume does not lend itself to the more substantive work I'm trying to do hmm. in the process of shopping for grad school. So I know I need to go and specialize. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just not sure how to properly market myself while I'm kind of floating in between two spaces. Mm -hmm. Do you have any suggestions? I think I think by swinging, swinging for the fences and investigating a lot right now. Mm -hmm you should start to have a feel for where you'd like to be better. Mm -hmm. I think diving in and, and looking at and, and building your, your own database of prospectives, I would hope that in the course of that, uh, it, it, you start to see some clarity where, where your skill base can be applied. Mm -hmm. We have, I mean, entry-level position is, is pretty, a pretty broad category. I, I would not find overqualified somebody with six years of experience that wanted to be a, a project coordinator because they had some experience managing resources and budgets and people, and they want to transfer that to, to helping support a program. So, so just to add, so I know where I want to go, so I have a target, right. but my skill set, there's a chasm between my current skill right. set and the target. Okay. Yeah. Then you've got to pursue that. Online courses, uh, fine. Um, yeah, short of a, like a two-year expensive master's degree, mm -hmm. you, can build your, you can build your skills today yeah. in a pretty precise manner that you, you didn't have available 10 years ago. And if I could just add something, because you said you work for NASA? Yes, I did. Um, my whole career has been was with the State Department and AID. If you happen to have a security clearance, that you want to highlight on your resume, that'll jump you ahead of everybody. Because certainly in AID, State, uh, some other organizations, you've got to have a security clearance. And it takes time to get those. Yeah. And if you have one, you want to highlight that on your resume because that is a really big deal. That will push yeah. you ahead of folks because they can't hire you for months until you get that clearance. Right. So if you have something like that, that helps as well, at least with the U.S. government. Got a couple of questions, Tom. Or uh, here. Then come over. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for coming, sir. Uh, my name is Caleb Paines, and I'm a student at Georgetown School of Continuing Studies. And as far as your point about get experience and know your passion, know what you want to do, for folks starting out in the field, if we have a passion such as agriculture, but we've talked to folks in the international development field that said, you know, to, be, to work in the technical field, you need 10-plus years of experience. I was sort of shocked by, so I talked to some folks at Chemonics, um, and they work on, you know, they're budget managers. Right. And, I, and I said, well, that's odd. You know, I thought international development. I mean, this shows my yeah. lack. This shows how much I need to learn about the field. Right. And so if you have a passion such as agriculture, will things such as volunteer work in horticulture and landscaping suffice? Or do I just need to pour, pour into it, get, get wherever I can, and, and grow that experience? Thank you. Oh, tough question. Uh, I'd, like, I'd like anything 
experience in agriculture, even if it's volunteer, but I'd like it in a developing country context, uh, not just at the local landscaping college service or something. Um, I'm an agribusiness expert today, but never studied agriculture. I was, I was the business guy, and all the business in developing countries happens around agriculture. So by, by practice, uh, I've become an agribusiness expert. And I can, I can talk high-value horticulture. I, I dragged my feet about getting to grains but eventually had to pay attention because it's, it's, it's very important food. I, uh, I, I have to agree with what, what Kimonix told you, that you can have a passion for agriculture and, and use it in international development, but you may not be able to go directly to that. You're going to have to get into a vehicle and an instrument where you're, for example, managing some agriculture programs. And so you've got to have that management savvy. And the agriculture passion comes in because you'll be drafting scopes of work for agricultural experts. You'll, you'll know what a corn borer is when there's a maize problem. or a, a, and, and eventually, in international development, you can wind up managing programs that have agriculture in them. Very few today have a full-time international agronomist. So you can use agriculture, but you, yeah, I think you've, you've got to keep the passion on agriculture, get experience in it, and be willing to, to manage. I think, uh, yeah, Ambassador Garbling made the point earlier about administration and logistics and management is, is pretty much the, the major function of those for-profits and non-profits that are doing international development. It's about managing the programs. Hi, thank you so much for being here. Um, so you're talking about management as being a really important skill um, and applicable to a lot of different things, but I've also heard that technical skills are more and um, more important for especially the future of all sorts of jobs, uh, being like data analytics, having right. computer science background. If yeah. I studied, for example, international relations as an undergrad, and I'm looking at postgrad um, postgrad options, should I? What are the technical skills that you are seeing as being the future? What are these yeah. new hires? What skills are you looking for? As there being a lack of skills in international development? I, it changes almost by day, but in general, yes, I, I hear what you're saying. It has to do with your, with, with your identified passion first. Um, yeah, I mean, IT skills, GPS, map making, uh, IT skills for, for data analysis, for management systems, uh, satellite uh, usage for predicting famine and, 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 and moisture and water tracking. Uh, I think IT is, is on a rise as an industry and as a valuable skill within the industry. Um, yeah, the MVP is management and, and writing. How many, how many times do we find in our, in our NGOs, yeah, you have to be able to write well, efficiently, and, and write grant applications or write proposals or rewrite people's CVs. Uh, that's that's just a, a good old-fashioned English major talent, but yeah, the IT side, the science side, the the analytics, uh, 
database management, that's all, that's all good tech skills that, that have niche applications. We were talking about management logistics as overall. It's, it's very flexible. You can manage this or you can manage that. Each of those teams has to also have technical content, and, and there's, a, there's an M&E person on a program, and there's a communications person increasingly on each program. Those are big ones. We'll take those two, and then uh, we're going to uh, we're going to end this. And then I know there's quite often a lot of people who want to ask Paul a question. And I'll and I'll so stay he's here. Be around for a little while, but I'm conscious of everybody's time, so these will be the last two. Uh, hi, my name is David Phillips. Um, I'll place my affiliation with uh, the Dupont Circle Rotary Foundation. It's an organization. It's a 501c3 that. Yeah. I incorporated as a member of DuPont Circle Rotary. And I would invite people, if you want to come network people with people who are in international fields development, come to DuPont Rotary. We meet Tuesday evenings at the Beer Baron. 6.30, we start with having drinks and a little meeting at 7. It's a much younger crowd than you're ever going to find at any Rotary anywhere, I swear to you. All right. I am the oldest member of the club at 52. Okay. Um, that said, I, I'm going through this mid-career transition myself. You can kind of tell I might be mid-career. Um, I have a Master of Science in uh, MIS from GW. Then I got bitten by a bug and went back. Uh, I went to University of Maryland, did a Master of Public Health, majoring in epidemiology. I've been living with HIV for 35 years myself. I got bitten by the bug in the organization around the International AIDS Conference here five years ago. And I will say, going to conferences, great networking opportunity. You're going to see mm -hmm. people who are hiring there. Yeah. Lots of these folks I've do, been doing a dance with for four years because it has to be the right position right. at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. That's good. Thank you. No, good, good resource, good ideas. Those events are, are just fabulous networking opportunities. Uh, Society for International Development, Washington, D.C. chapter, has a special discount student rate. Uh, DevX, we mentioned. Last question. Hello. I just had um, two little questions about the idea of uh, trying to find a mentor. Um, so first question is, um, what's appropriate to expect from a mentor? Um, and then also, when you finish your internship, do you have any advice on how to kind of continue that relationship um, beyond kind of the end of the internship? Good questions, both. Um, the expectations for a mentor, I think that that's like uh, as many as the animals in the zoo. There are mentors with whom you will form a strong personal bond and, and they'll, they'll, become, uh, they'll become very close and they will uh, think of you first and they will, they will give you... Uh, time and opportunities. There are, there's a full spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, there are mentors who are really busy and, and have, a, have a sense of duty to, to want to help people, and they will give you what help they can. I don't think that there's, a, there's, there's no scope of work for being a mentor. It's, it's a full spectrum. And I think, I think you, if you want to excel at everything, go for multiple mentors. 
consider it, you know, a network, and and each each threshold passer becomes another mentor. You might have multiple mentors on different aspects of your career, or a mentor in this section of the industry, and and three others in another section of the industry. So I I don't think that there's a an honest expectation, except what that mentor is willing to do. I think that's where you kind of have, you have some conversations. Uh, I don't want to make it my personal experience too much. Internship and beyond, that's another great question, because we say, get your foot in the door, be an intern, be a volunteer, get in there. What about, uh, I, think, I think the end of the internship is, is too late. I think that during the internship, that's when you've got to start the network going and you've got to start mentoring and you've got to ask people and you've got to see what's coming and you've got to see if there's any opportunity, if there's anything you can do better. It goes back to the principle of be outstanding at whatever you do. Be so outstanding as an intern that people come up with ideas for you that they didn't have. Uh, otherwise, yeah, there might be a process, there might be a cycle, it might go by months. Uh, some people have paid internships, others don't. Some are six months, some are three. Uh, some companies use internships to vet potential employees, others don't. Um, I think you have to you have to build during the internship, though. Don't wait. Don't wait till it's till it's ending. Great. Thank you very much. Please join me in thanking Paul for being here today. <laughs>